passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. All right, uh, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, first Sunday of Advent, as I mentioned, Advent, uh, for a little bit of trivia for, for you, uh, comes from a Latin word uh, that means coming, all right? So uh, this is the time where we look forward uh, to Christmas and, and the time of Jesus' coming, but also uh, for millennia, the church has set aside this time to also look forward toward Jesus' second coming. That's his second advent that we are looking forward to, and I think it's always appropriate for us as we spend time in advent, as we spend time uh, preparing our hearts for the coming of Jesus at Christmas to also prepare our hearts uh, for his, his return. And I think that's a, a helpful reminder for us as we begin this series, um, this advent, um, as we're, we're spending four weeks looking at different quote-unquote, characters of the Christmas story. And we'll be looking at uh, Mary this week. Next week, we'll be looking at the shepherds. Um, and then the week after that, we'll look at the wise men or the magi. And then finally, we'll look at Joseph. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, on Christmas Eve, we'll spend time looking at Jesus. And um, that'll kind of be our roadmap uh, over the next few weeks or so. This morning, as we consider Mary... I want us to, to really consider the story of Mary in reality as the story of Jesus. Uh, because uh, for all of these different characters that we're going to look at over the next four weeks, uh, their story is, is ultimately a, a, a sub-story that's pointing us to Jesus and pointing us to the magnificence of what he has done for us. If you look at Luke chapter 1, you look at Luke chapter 2, and you'll, you'll see that every single part of this story that, that talks about Mary is, is dripping with significance about who Jesus is. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're actually going to consider how the story of Mary points us toward the story of Jesus. It's going to tell us about how God is at work in the world preparing a way of redemption for each and every one of us. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. That's where we're going to be this morning. If you're familiar with the Christmas story, you're probably familiar with this passage. This is the passage that actually Scott read to us um, in that video, uh, it's, it's when the angel, Gabriel, appears to Mary and, and makes this pronouncement that she is about to have a son. Our text breaks into three parts. Uh, it starts with the greeting, and then after that, it gets into the declaration, uh, and then after that, it's, it's the response. And we're going to go ahead and follow that um, path as well this morning, how, and hopefully we'll see how all of this ultimately points us to Jesus. So as we approach God's word, let's, uh, let's pause for a time of prayer. Um, asking God's blessing to be on our time together. Would you pray with me? Father, it is uh, so good to be able to gather together with your people, uh, to gather around your word, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We do ask that you would speak to us. We ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear your word. Even more, God, we ask that you would give us hearts that are able to respond to the message of your word with glad obedience. Lord, that we would be like Mary in this passage. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, so Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38 is our passage this morning. Before we jump into that, I want us to just kind of briefly remind ourselves or, or set the stage of what Luke's gospel is all about. Why is Luke writing this gospel? He actually gives us the answer at the very beginning. In Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, he's talking about why he's writing this. And then in verses 3 and 4, I want to zero in on this. He says this, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And here's the reason why. So that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So that's the purpose, that's the reason why Luke is writing his gospel, so that you might have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So everything that Luke includes in his gospel is, is meant to be focused on this purpose, so that we can have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. In other words, Luke writes his gospel so that we can be confident in the gospel, Confident in what Christ has done for those who come to him in repentance and in faith. Everything that Luke writes here in chapter 1 is about this confidence that we can have in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. So it might be curious to us or, or cause a little bit of confusion that we look at Luke chapter 1 and right after that, Luke doesn't go into the story of Jesus' birth. He actually goes into the story of this pronouncement of his cousin, of, of John the Baptist's birth. We see this, this angel appears to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. And John will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to make ready for the people, or for the Lord, a people prepared. So thousands of years ago in the first century, in this small province, thousands of miles away from where we are this morning, on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea, God is about to do something special. And because he's about to do something special, he's going to prepare the hearts of the people for what he is about to do, and he's going to use a man named John... And he's going to use this man named John to turn the hearts of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he's going to use John to prepare for God a people. What exactly does that mean? Let's go ahead and consider the answer from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, starting with this greeting that we see in verses 26 through 30. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's prophesied pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. So much in, in the same way that the angel Gabriel appears to John's father Zechariah, now he appears to announce the second miraculous birth, but that's where the similarities seem to end between the, the pronouncement of John's birth and and Jesus' birth. Zechariah is a priest, and he's serving in the, the very presence of God in the temple. That's what we see in verses 8 and 9 of Luke chapter 1. Mary, on the other hand, is, is in this backwater country. She's in Nazareth. Decades later, Jesus' soon-to-be follower, his soon-to-be disciple, Nathaniel, really sums up what people thought of, of Nazareth in that day. Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
The implication, of course, is that no, nothing good ever comes out of Nazareth. Later in John's Gospel, we see that Jesus' Galilean heritage is actually a stumbling block for some people who would consider him to be the Messiah, would consider him to be the Christ, but can't get over the fact that he is from the backwater country of Galilee. But some said, is this Christ supposed to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So Gabriel's appearance here in this Galilean village to this Galilean teenager, rather than this woman of Bethlehem or a woman of of Jerusalem, is surprising to, to say the least. Notice also that whereas Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, they've reached old age without a child, that's what we see in verse 7, Mary, on the other hand, is young, and she's unmarried, and she's a virgin. She's betrothed to this man named Joseph. Luke emphasizes that Mary is unwed and that she is a virgin. If you look at verse 27, he mentions it, very, he mentions it twice. He's making it very explicit because it's very important to what he is about to tell us. He's saying that while Joseph and Mary are betrothed, which is roughly the equivalent of being engaged today, he, he says they're not yet married. And it's important for what is about to come. So let's go ahead and keep reading. Verse 28. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, or literally, the word here is rejoice. Rejoice, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. As I mentioned, the angel's word, or the word translated greeting here, from the angel is actually the word rejoice. It's actually a command to rejoice. So the first thing the angel does when he appears to Mary is to say, I need you to rejoice. And as you can imagine, Mary is caught off guard by that. The first words out of this angel's mouth, to rejoice. They focus on joy. They focus on the joy that is about to come because of the gospel. It's a weighty moment right here. All of history has been leading to this moment. Mary doesn't yet realize all of it, but the weight of the promises of the Old Testament are going to be fulfilled when what the angel proclaims comes to pass. Here we see that God is intervening into human history by sending this angel. And the first thing that the angel cries out to Mary is to rejoice because God is at work. It's, it's this cry to join the joy of heaven because at last the time has come. God's plan to save lost, wayward humanity is about to come to pass. So no wonder the angel starts by saying, rejoice, O favored one. What does the angel mean when he calls Mary favored one? It means that God has chosen to bestow his grace on Mary in choosing her for this this task. According to the text, if we look at the text, there's nothing inherently special about Mary that God should choose her for this task. She holds no position of power or, or esteem that God should choose her. This is what 
Mary actually later says in her very famous song, she's considering the, the marvel that God would use someone like her in his plan to redeem humanity. So a, a couple verses later in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 48, it says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Why? For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. So here in this moment, in Mary, in Mary, God is about to do something that he is, he's been really, he's been doing throughout human history. He's using imperfect people for the purposes of salvation. So we look at Genesis chapter 12 and we look at, at the calling of Abraham. There's nothing special about Abraham that God should choose him to be a blessing to the nations. Actually, uh, a couple books later in, in the book of Joshua, it says that he's a pagan moon worshiper. He's worshiping these false gods, and yet God calls him and says, I want you to follow me, and I will use you as a blessing to the nations. Same thing with Moses in Exodus chapter 2 and 3 and 4. Moses expresses a great deal of reluctance to serve God as the leader that, that God is going to use to call his people out of slavery because he believes that he is unqualified, and he is unqualified. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, David is the least kingly of all of his brothers and yet is chosen as the leader of God's people. God is in the business of choosing people who don't look the parts according to the world. And yet he has special plans for them. Not necessarily because of any special quality inherent within them, but simply because he bestows grace upon those that he calls to further his purposes. Now, Mary's response in verse 29 is what we should probably expect from someone who has this angel suddenly appear to them and, and begin talking. She's perplexed. Um, I think that's just kind of to say the least. She's, she's perplexed. And then this angel again begins to, to emphasize her favored status in God's eyes. And the angel assures her that God is at work and God is going to do something amazing. But before we get into the specifics of what that amazing something that God is about to do is, I just want us to pause at the end of this passage, at the end of this greeting here, and consider what the text has revealed to us so far. Angel hasn't gotten into the specifics of what God is going to do, but we can sense that God is doing something special. We see it in this command to rejoice. We see it in God's grace in choosing Mary to be a part of his rescue plan to save humanity. We see it even in comparing the contrast between Zechariah when an angel appears to him and Mary in Luke chapter 1. The reality is all of these voices or all of these verses are pointing us to this moment where we see that at Christmas God is at work in the world in a new way. At Christmas, God is at work in the world in a new way. Something completely new. Something completely unprecedented. God has intervened into human history in the past, but all that pales with what God is about to do. At Christmas, God is at work in the world in a new way. Now, we might ask, well, what specifically is God going to do in the world? That's what the angel reveals in his declaration in verses 31 through 34. 
And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? So in verses 31, uh, the angel, he's revealing to Mary that she's going to bear this son and then proceeds to give title after title, description after description, fulfillment after fulfillment of what this son is going to be like. We could spend a month looking at just these verses alone, all of the implications of what the angel uses to describe Jesus. I just want us to consider a, a few of these implications briefly about Mary's son. First, if you look in verse 31, Notice the name that the angel says, you will call him Jesus. In Hebrew, the the name Jesus means the Lord saves. So already here, with his name, we see why Jesus has come to earth. It tells us of his mission. It is to save people. Mary's son will meet the greatest need of humanity. And that is to save people from their sins. Our greatest need is to be freed from the chain of sin. Our greatest need is to be brought from death into life. Jesus comes to save, and this is a mission that is bound up in his very name. Again, no no wonder the angel here in this passage declares to Mary, rejoice. We rejoice because God is at work in the world in a new way. He's offering salvation to people who are in desperate need of it. Without this miraculous work on our behalf, we would have no hope. So the good news of Christmas is that there is hope for the hopeless. So rejoice, Mary. Notice what else the angel says in verse 32. It says, he will be great. The weight of this declaration is profound, and it goes back thousands of years before Jesus' birth. So God's rescue plan from the very beginning, this crucial moment, Genesis chapter 12, as God is calling Abraham to follow him, and he says, if you follow me, I am going to do something. Notice his words specifically. Now the Lord said to Abram, I will bless you, and do what? And make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God makes this promise thousands of years before Jesus to Jesus' ancestor Abraham and says, I'm going to make your name great, and part of that means that I'm going to use you to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Centuries after Abraham, we we see this this terminology come up again. 2 Samuel chapter 7, God is talking with David. Again, another ancestor of Jesus. And he says that I'm going to do something special with you, David. Go, tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. We're in the same trajectory here. God has a plan, and he begins that plan, really he begins that plan in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, but he reveals part of that in Genesis chapter 12. 
And then he reveals even more of that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He says, I'm going to use the greatness of my chosen king to bless all of the families of the earth. And that's what we see here with Mary. With Mary, we have the fullness of God's plan to save humanity. Jesus' greatness here is not rooted in his political power. It's not rooted in his military might. But it's because of his faithfulness to God's plan and God's plan to rescue and to save people from all the nations through Jesus' obedience. He will be great. So rejoice, Mary. Notice what else the angel says. angel says that Mary's son will be the son of the Most High. This is a synonym for calling Jesus the Son of God. That's made explicit in verse 35. Like so many of the other parts of the angel statement, this just drips with these kingly overtones that Jesus is going to be a king. The term the Son of God was a term that was oftentimes used in the Old Testament to refer to the king. And so this is why we see David is called God's son. Psalm chapter 2 was this song that was sung when the king was being crowned, and that's why it has this verse in it. I will tell of the decree, the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So whenever the king was crowned, he was considered to be God's son because God had chosen him to lead the people of Israel. In a sense, this phrase, son of God, in the Old Testament, oftentimes means something more like, this man is the king because God has chosen him. So is that what Luke means when he refers to Jesus as the son of the Most High, as the son of God? Well, for starters, yes, he is referring to Jesus as the coming king, and we see that explicitly later on in this passage. But also at the same time, that can't be all that Luke is referring to that the angel has in mind because in Luke chapter 1 verse 35 it wouldn't make any sense if he's just saying Jesus is going to be the king so take a look at verse 35 and the angel answered her the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you therefore the child to be born will be called holy the son of God so the angel is saying something special is happening in this moment Something that has never happened before. Luke is referring to something that is more than just this special relationship with God as Jesus being the king. He means something more. And the answer to that, of course, is the easiest answer of what does it mean to be the son of God? Well, it just means that Jesus is the son of God. Consider John's gospel. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Or consider what Paul says writes to the church in Colossae, for in Jesus the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So Jesus is the divine son of God. He's not just a human king that has been anointed by God. He is God himself. He is God in the flesh. And this is, as the angel tells Mary, a cause to rejoice. It's a cause for rejoicing because it means that in Jesus... God is doing something new, that Jesus is able to do something that no one else can do, that Jesus has this mission that he is coming to earth to accomplish, he's able to save. As both God and man, he's able to bridge the gap between God and humanity. He really is 
great. But the angel's not done yet. He declares that Mary's son will be the king forever, as made clear in the last part of verse 32 and in verse 33. If you look back at, at Israel's history, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 587 B.C. And in that year, Israel officially lost their king. But in 2 Samuel chapter 7, as we saw earlier, God has promised that, that there will be a king one day who will sit on David's throne and will reign forever. And the Old Testament is filled with all of these promises. That's what most of the prophets talk about, at least a little bit. That there is a day coming where David's son, the king, will one day return to his throne. And for 400 years before Jesus, there's this silence where God doesn't speak. And this silence creates this even greater anticipation for God's king to finally come. People are longing for a king to return to Israel. Because when the king returned, they knew that things would get better. In fact, they reasonably hoped that things would be as good as they had been under David, under Solomon, the, the golden age of the, the nation of Israel. They longed for political liberation from, from Rome, a return to David's kingdom. And when the king returns, that's what he would do. At least that's what they thought. Because here's the thing. Those expectations about Jesus are too small. Jesus wasn't content with ruling a, a small patch of dirt in the vast universe. He's not just going to be the king of the Jewish people. He's not just going to be the king of Israel. He's going to be the king of everything the king of everyone. Jesus comes to establish his kingdom, yes, but his kingdom is going to be made up of people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation on the face of the planet. Jesus is the king of the entire universe. There's a problem in creation that Jesus has come to fix. And he's not going to fix it by just being a king over a small nation but to redeem all of creation. And one day, that promise will be fully realized. All people will recognize his rule. All people will recognize his authority. No wonder the angel declares rejoice. There's so much weight here in the angel's words about Mary's son, and they're all pointing to this truth about how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. All of these promises that we see in the Old Testament, they're united in Jesus Put it another way, Christmas declares that the fullness of God's promises found in Jesus. Everything that God has promised in the Old Testament, Christmas tells us it points to and is fulfilled in Jesus. The whole Old Testament points us to Jesus. Every longing of the people of Israel will be fulfilled in Jesus. God's promises will ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus, in Mary's son. And after you hear 
all of that, Mary's response in verse 34 is, is really shocking because after hearing all of that, Mary's declaration in her response shows this implicit trust in God, that God is able to do it, but she has no idea how God is actually able to do it, how specifically she is going to be a part of it. And so she says, how will this be since I am a virgin? It's almost as if Mary is saying, God, I get that you are able to do these things, that you are going to fulfill your promises. I get all that, but how do I play into this? Because what you're describing right now seems impossible for me. And that leads us to the angel's response in verses 35 through 37. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Notice there's two parts, just briefly. There's two parts to the angel's response here. First, the, there's this explanation in response to Mary's question in verse 35. How? How is this going to happen? Because I'm a virgin. She, the angel says the Holy Spirit will come upon you. This is the mystery of the incarnation. That this virgin gives birth to a son. But notice, secondly, that the angel actually goes even further and says, you know what, we're going to give you a sign. I'm going to give a sign to you in verses 36 and 37. As proof that God is able to do this, I want you to look at your relative Elizabeth who was barren, and yet now she has a child in her old age. The angel is saying, I know that this is hard to believe, but God is already doing something similar with your relative Elizabeth. And if God is able to do that, then of course God is able to do this as well. I mentioned that this final part of this passage is, is the response, but it's not primarily because of the angel's response to Mary. It's actually because of Mary's response to everything that we've seen to this point. And her response is found in verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. What a beautiful statement of trust and obedience from Mary. This verse really sums up the life of Mary. Servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. Her world has been rocked. All of her plans for her life have been shattered. Just for a moment, Imagine with me what it was like to be Mary at this moment. She's about to get married. She's from a small community of probably 200, 300 people, Nazareth. She lives far from the places of power. Now, from her responses, we can see that she loves the Lord. I wouldn't be shocked if Mary's greatest desire in life would be summed up in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. 
And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Her desire is to love God and really to to raise a family that, that loves him as well. But then this angel appears to her And reveals that God has plans for her, plans that are going to leave her ostracized. Because who on earth is going to believe that she had a child as a virgin and wasn't just promiscuous? God's plans for her will leave her ostracized. God's plans for her are hard to fathom. Plans when even when they're explained, they don't really make all that much sense. We can't wrap our minds around it. And yet, how does she respond I am the servant of the Lord. Mary's concern here is not with her reputation. It's not with what her dream of what her life would be like. It is simply to be faithful to what God has asked of her. This is incredible faith. It's incredible obedience. Mary is a pillar of faith. If you look at the, in the entire testimony of Scripture, and you look at all of the faith of, of the saints, Abraham, David, Moses, you could look at anyone. You might find people with faith and obedience that are in the same category as Mary, but no one who has greater faith, no one who is more willing to be obedient to her Lord other than Jesus himself. What's more, her response reveals something crucial about faith in general as well. Mary's obedience here reveals that faith is primarily rooted in the trustworthiness of God. Do you really think that Mary understood what it meant that the power of the Most High will overshadow her? Do you really think that Mary understood what it meant for her to conceive as a virgin? The weight of all of these different promises about what Jesus is going to look or going to be like. We actually look at the testimony of Scripture. We see that Mary doesn't understand. She doesn't understand the full weight of what Gabriel is saying in verses 31 through 33 until after the resurrection. She doesn't understand the, the weight and the details of God's promises and how he's going to accomplish all of these promises to her, but that doesn't matter to Mary. For Mary, her confidence and faith are rooted not in her ability to understand God's plans for her, but instead simply in the trustworthiness of God. That God, the one who has asked her these things, is trustworthy. And for Mary, that's good enough for her. She'll leave the details of obedience to him. For Mary, faith isn't impossible until God has revealed all of these inner workings, has laid everything out for her. Rather, for Mary, faith means that she may never fully understand the intricacies of how this all plays out, but that doesn't matter. Because for Mary, her faith is rooted not in understanding these promises to a T but in the one who made those promises. That the God who made these promises is worth trusting, and that is 
good enough for her, and so she responds with obedience that changes the world. I mentioned at the be- as we began this morning that Mary's story is really the story of Jesus, and that's true. Now, Mary certainly has a, a part to play in God's mission to, to rescue humanity. It's a big part, but it's not the main part. It's not the main point. God asks her to respond with faith and obedience to play her part in the story, and she does exactly that. And if we were to sum up our time with Mary, I think that's a good way of doing it this morning. I think it would be this. God uses the obedience of his people to accomplish his purposes. That God uses the obedience of people like Mary to accomplish his purposes. That's true in Mary's life, that God uses her obedience to God to bring about this plan of salvation to the ends of the earth. That doesn't mean that if Mary wouldn't have responded with faith, if she wouldn't have responded with obedience, that God's plan and purposes would have been thwarted. God would have been able to accomplish his purposes in another way. But it does mean that Mary would have had no part to play in the story of redemption. Instead, Mary responds with obedience And God uses her to accomplish his his purposes for salvation. And I I don't want to oversimplify this, but what if we considered that God would do the same thing with our obedience? That God would use our own faith to accomplish his purposes in the world. Obviously not on the same scale as Mary. But might God use your obedience in small moments to accomplish his purposes in the world? What might God do through your obedience and faith? See, God uses the obedience of his people to accomplish his purposes. That obedience, however, does not save us. That's true for all of us, including Mary. The Bible doesn't talk a lot about Mary after the birth of Jesus, but it does reveal to us enough of a picture to show that Mary desperately needs to be saved through the work of her son on the cross, just like anyone else. Luke chapter 2, we see that in spite of everything that the angel has said to Mary, she doesn't fully grasp the weight of, of who Jesus is, what Jesus would do. So when the adolescent Jesus stays in the temple teaching and talking with these scribes, Mary responds with this consternation because you can't understand why Jesus is absent. It says this, and when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. The adolescent Jesus responds with this statement that gives us a glimpse into his true identity, and yet Mary doesn't understand. It says this, and he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Years later, as her son becomes the talk of Galilee and Judea, he's this traveling teacher, he's this miracle worker. Mary and her other sons, they actually get concerned about Jesus' mental and physical health. They say, Jesus, you're going to burn yourself out. We need you to come home, take a rest, avoid the crowds for a while because everyone's clamoring after you and we need you to be well. 
says this in Mark chapter 3, Then he, Jesus, went home, and the crowds gathered again so that he could not even eat. And when his, father, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Just a few verses later, Mark continues his story about Jesus' family in Mark chapter 3, verses 31 and following. And his, mothers and brothers came, his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside, they're seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. We have this picture in Jesus' ministry of Mary, who out of love for her son Jesus, doesn't grasp who her son Jesus actually is. But she stays with him. Nearly all of Jesus' disciples abandon him at his crucifixion, and yet his mother Mary is still with him. John chapter 19. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. We have this picture of Mary watching her beloved son Jesus die this awful death on a cross. Can you imagine how much her heart must have hurt in that moment? It seemed that on the cross, the words of the angel have been proven wrong. But of course, the words of the angel weren't proven wrong. Jesus doesn't stay dead. He appears to over 500 of his disciples, according to the Apostle Paul. And the Bible doesn't explicitly say that Mary sees her resurrected son, but almost certainly she did because of her inseparability from the disciples of Jesus after Jesus' death. Mary's heart undoubtedly filled with joy in that moment, joy that's been commanded to her all these years ago by the angel all the way back in Luke chapter 1. Joy for what Jesus has done. Joy for Jesus' victory over sin and death. Our last account of Mary, last time she's mentioned in the Bible, in Acts, the beginning of the book of Acts. Luke, consider how he describes Mary after the resurrection of Jesus. So when they had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took them out of their sight. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with, with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. The text is ambiguous as to whether or not Mary saw Jesus' ascension, but it is clear that she's one of his followers at this point. The last glimpse that we get of Mary in the Bible is not just Mary, the mother of Jesus, but Mary, the disciple of Jesus. Mary, the follower of Jesus. The life of Mary is this journey of gradual understanding of God's plan and the part that she had to play in it in Mary. We see this paragon of faith, someone who trusted God, responded with obedience to what God had asked of her. 
The story of Mary is ultimately not about Mary at all. It's a story of Jesus. It's a story of how God uses faith and obedience from his people to accomplish his purposes. Even when we don't understand, trusting in the trustworthiness of the God who promises. This Christmas, let's respond with that same sort of faith, that same sort of obedience that we might see God's plans for Spencer and the surrounding communities fulfilled because we were willing to trust in God. Let's pray. God, it is such a gift to have your word and to consider people like Mary God, we ask as we look at this passage and as we get ready for Christmas, we ask that you would help us to prepare our hearts with joy, anticipation for who you are and what you have done. Help us respond with faith and obedience to the calling of the gospel. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.